Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world. Broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world. BlakeRadio.com. Music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You're listening to Rainbow Soul. BlakeRadio.com. Jennifer Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniels on the Blake Radio Network Rainbow Soul. Today is Tuesday, December 15th, 2015. Wow, do we have a doozy of a show today. But I definitely have to say, nothing you hear today is to be considered medical advice. I am simply quoting the authorities. You draw your own conclusions. All right. So, as many of you know, I actually went to medical school, shocking as that might be. And we've all heard it, and I've repeated it a couple of times, that 50% of everything taught in medical school is false. This is what we students are told, were told, back in the 70s and 80s when I went and they are still telling this to medical students. And they tell us that they do not know which half is false, so they teach it all as if it were true, and of course, they call it the standard of care. So, with a 50% error in the information database, at least 50% of what your doctor does will not be helpful. It can't be because it's based on something that's not true. And so you have to ask, well, what happens when the medical industrial complex discovers something is false? Right. So we're told that every four years, an additional 50% of what we're taught is false. So in other words, at the time it's taught, 50% is false. By the time, or 50% is true. By the time we graduate, 25% of what we were taught is true. You get the picture? Another four years later, 12.5% of what we've been taught is true. So really, 
By the time your doctor gets into medical practice, finishes his residency, 12.5% of the knowledge in his head is true. So you have to ask, what happens when a retraction is needed? What happens when a retraction is printed? So today, we're going to go through this shocking process as told by the medical industrial complex itself. So I will be, you know, I'll give you some sources here. So as I've told you before, please go to medscape.com and, uh, you know, sign up. You get these retractions every day in your box too. All right, so number one biggie, statins are so harmless. This is a position in the 90s when I was in medical practice. They, are, they have no side effects. There is no downside to stents. And because of this, the small amount of good that they conferred was reason enough to take them because they did not harm. So for this reason, it was reasonable to take them for the 1,250 years it took for them to show results. But wait, but wait. In the past three years, it has been clear and has been shared with the public that statins cause side effects in 30% of those who take them. That statins dissolve muscles, cause kidney problems, and cause diabetes, which we know to be deadly, and causes Alzheimer's disease, which we also know to be deadly. So how is this handled? How is this handled? So let's read the headlines. Hold on to your hat here. Bad press may make patients stop statins and raise heart attack risk. Yep, that's the retraction headline. That is the headline. And let's just read this study because we're going to draw some conclusions based exclusively on this study. Well, I shouldn't say the study, but this opinion. And I'm going to put the link to this right in the chat box. For those of you who are not following along, chat box is healingwithdrdaniels.chattangle.com. And here is the link. Okay. And so the deal here is people are risking their lives by stopping their stents. All right. This is a big study during up to 14 years, we'll give them credit for 14 years, a follow-up in a matched study of 424,000 patients. All right, that's a good-sized study. Who continued statins and 84,800 patients who discontinued statins early on. Now, these are big numbers, okay? 19,429 individuals developed a heart attack, and 19,173 died from cardiovascular disease. It's like, holy cow. So 19,000 got a heart attack. We're not going to count those. We only count deaths. But 19,100 died. We're going to count those because it says, uh, you know, patients are going to risk horrible things happening. All right. So patients who discontinued statins early were more likely to have a heart attack, 1.26, that means 26% more likely. 
or die from any cardiovascular causes, about 18% more than likely, during follow-up after adjustments for multiple factors. All right, we'll take their word for it. We're going to guess that they did a fair, even-handed review here. We're not going to question that. But, uh, excuse me, a 14% increased risk over 14 years is a 1% per year increase. Okay, 1% per year increase. This was done in Denmark. You need to know the crude death rate is 10 per thousand in Denmark. That means 10 people per thousand die in Denmark every year. This is the year 2012, so it's a nice uh, year kind of in the range of this study. All right, crude death rate for U.S. is 8 per thousand, which would be 80 per 100,000. Okay, so in other words, the average death rate in Denmark where this study was done is 100 per 10,000 and the U.S. is 80 per 10,000. So just follow this complex math here. So 424,000 continued statins, 885,000 stopped statins. So you have the total of this to get the denominator. 19,000 died. The death rate over 14 years was 4%. Take the 4%, divide it by 14 years, and the annual death rate from heart attack or heart disease was 26 per 10,000. Right, 26 per 10,000. This means that at least 74% of deaths in this high-risk cardiac group were not from heart attack. All right, how many were from stopping statins? Well, the increase in death due to heart attack at most was 30%. So 30% of this 26 is 7.8. So 7.8 deaths per 10,000 could be attributed to stopping statins. Yeah. Yeah. So by stopping cholesterol drugs, a person increased their death rate by 7 per 10,000 or 0.7 per thousand. So the death due to stopping statins increased a person's death rate by 0.7 per 10,000. In order to be sure of dying of stopping a statin, it would take 1,282 years for a person to die of not taking a statin. This matches very nicely with the industry research that shows it takes 1,250 years of use for a statin to prevent one fatal heart attack. So, if you went through the trouble to calculate these numbers, you would see that since you would have to stop your statins for 1,284 years in order to be harmed by stopping your statin, stopping a statin is a pretty safe bet unless you plan to live 1,284 years with diabetes, Alzheimer's, and total body muscle aches. So would you pay for a train ride that promised you 1,284 years to reach your destination? And if you would take that kind of a ride, how much would you pay for it? Hey guys, this is a retraction. It's as good as it gets. This is a pro-statin article written in a pro-medical industrial complex journal. And just as an aside, uh, if you spent your money 
on things that had a 1 in 1,284 chance of success, it would be similar to taking 1,284 years to earn what you earn in a year. Or put another way, if you earn $100,000 a year, that would reduce your earning power to $77.88 a year. And that's before taxes. This is why consuming health care is so devastating. Let's look at the next retraction. We have lots of retractions here. So the next retraction is diabetes. As many of you have heard me say, there's a diabetes study just came out indicating that death rates increase 30% when the hemoglobin A1C is 8 or less and achieved with medications. So if you treat a diabetic with drugs and you have a target treatment goal of hemoglobin A1C at 8 or less, you actually increase the person's chance of dying from all causes by 30%. This is important because many diabetic overdose deaths are classified as accidents or suicides. And so the accident suicide rate among diabetics is absolutely skyrocketed. Okay, so care, so the standard of care is of no benefit to increasing the lifespan of patients with diabetes. So here's that retraction. Now, this is from a diabetic specialist doctor, and this retraction slash confession is given in the context of saying, hey, you know, for the last 20 years we've been lying to diabetics and deceiving them, and now there's a new whiz-bang thing out there, and I'd just like to mention that everything we've been doing up to this point has been pretty much useless. So let's read this quote. We've got the link here in the chat room, which is healingwithdrdaniels.chatdangles.com. And here it is. Again, pro-diabetic doctor, pro-diabetes article, pro-diabetes publication, total bias in the positive direction of diabetic treatment. So here's the quote. When the results from the blah, blah, blah trial came up on the screen, not only did 5,000 diabetologists gasp, we were also cheered and applauded. Why was that? It was because this is the first time, that means before this was not true, that we've had a diabetic drug that reduces the relative risk for both cardiovascular and all-cause mortality. All right, so before this moment, they did not have a drug that would reduce all-cause mortality from diabetics. So diabetics, fewer than would die from diabetes or heart disease, but a lot more would die from, of course, accident, suicide, other causes. Okay. So this is basically a retraction saying that all that care we were giving for the past 20 years at least did nothing to improve or increase the life expectancy of a diabetic. And she goes on to say, this was staggering news to us because we've been plodding along, keeping glycolated hemoglobin levels under control, 
and preventing microvascular complications, but our patients remained at high risk for macrovascular disease. And she says, and now this is from a scientist, right? In my heart, I know that I'm finally using a diabetes drug that both reduces the risk for diabetes complications by lowering blood sugar and also, get this word, potentially, reduces the risk of cardiovascular mortality in my high-risk patients with type 2 diabetes. I could not be happier that I have this tool. So this person is relying on a feeling in her heart and a potential for benefit to her patients. And uh, I, I would call this a pretty strong and shocking retraction. Um, this is an admission that, as I said, for the past 20 to 40 years, diabetes therapy has not prevented even one death in a diabetic. All it's done is uh, basically killed them with therapy and reclassified the death as non-cardiac. So this is as good as it gets in medical school. When they would announce that a now obsolete therapy did not save one life, I would ask, well, did it destroy any lives? Did it reduce survival? The answer was always the same. Jennifer, the study was not designed to detect that. In other words, if it did kill people, we designed the study so as not to detect that. Okay. Of course, you can imagine being an enthusiastic, energetic 20-something. I always ask the question, hoping that this next study was designed to answer that question. And, of course, it never was. So uh, this innocent, uh, simple doctor showing total lack of judgment is going to accept this new breakthrough at face value, even though... She has 40-year history of deception to refer to. In other words, where she'd been lied to about prior therapies. This, folks, is how ineffective medical practice is replaced with more ineffective medical practice. In her defense, she is commenting on an article that has not yet been published. In other words, she's being used to shape the opinion of other doctors. And so here is the... um, Here's the article. It says September 17th, 2015, ahead of print. So I don't know how it can be ahead of print after, after September 15th, but we'll put this right there. All right. Now, this is a similar uh, type of thing that happened uh, when Celebrex was released. Those of you remember Celebrex was a COX-2 inhibitor that caused uh, tens if not hundreds of thousands of deaths due to uh, heart disease. So by way of releasing these COX-2 inhibitors, the drug companies said, hey, we're going to tell you 17,000 Americans die every year from arthritis drugs that cause them to bleed to death. Do you think they would have shared that with us doctors before? They had a COX-2 inhibitor to release? Uh, no chance. So they bombarded us doctors with these statistics in the um, late 90s. Released the COX-2 inhibitors, 
much to the detriment of these unfortunate patients. And now that these uh, COX-2 inhibitors are, are have fallen out of favor, they're telling you that, oh, I go back to what you're doing. But no one's mentioning the 17,000 deaths per year. I mean, I don't know what happened to that number. But this is the way these things are happening, or handled rather. All right, here's another retraction. Those of you who uh, have a teenager in the family, or maybe you know a teenager, uh, you might be familiar uh, with the recommendations. The recommendation, they started in the early 80s and it really took hold in the 90s, that hormone-based contraceptives are safe. They are so safe that every responsible parent should put their daughter on one at least one of these contraceptives at the first period, or for acne, or for irregular periods, or, well, whatever. But every young lady should be on these things because they're so safe, and we don't want a teenage pregnancy now, do we? So, what is the retraction? This one is, is, is really cute. And here's what it says. Repeat heart attack and stroke risks in younger women on oral contraceptives. Well, wait a minute. Well, repeat? You mean these young ladies had a first heart attack and stroke due to these contraceptives, and now they're having a second one? Okay. So if these things are so safe, how come we're... We're measuring these repeat strokes. And so this is in the Netherlands, but it's still published in, um, in Medscape and sent to U.S. doctors. So we're just going to guess that women in the Netherlands are somehow similar to women in, well, the United States. Okay. So women who have had a cardiovascular event, euphemism for heart attack, well, or heart attack or stroke, so it's cardio, that's heart, vascular, blood vessel, while on oral contraceptives, have a substantially higher long-term risk of a stroke and heart attack compared with healthy women. Wait, these ladies were perfectly healthy until they were put on these birth control. So what this does, rather than explicitly saying, wait, taking the birth control pill can give ladies heart attacks and strokes, I mean, in their 20s, 30s, and maybe we shouldn't hand these things out like candy. Like, no, 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 we're just going to study the woman who had one heart attack while using contraceptives and look at their chances of having a second heart attack. This is the this is the closest again. This is this can be this is a retraction. It's saying, hey, yeah, you know, the contraceptives cause heart attacks in young ladies. Let's just let's study it. And uh, the analysis here is a cohort of adult women who are age 50 and younger when they started these uh, birth control pills. So. This is uh, shocking. And so what's their answer? The results highlight the negative consequences of, what do you think the next word is? See, I would think 
it would be the negative consequences of birth control. That's not what it says. The negative consequences of cardiovascular events in young women that continue for decades. Well, wait a minute. What touched all this off? Was there a birth control? It's not mentioned. Pointing to the need for lifelong prevention strategies. So you give the lady a medication called birth control pill. She has a heart attack. She has a stroke. And now I said, now we need to make a lifelong patient out of her. Well, maybe you need to get out of her life. You think you've already ruined it, don't you think? But anyway, uh, contraceptive study included female survivors. In other words, some of them died. So in the study, researchers drew on data from the risk of arterial thrombosis in relation to oral contraceptive study. So they actually did a study on the risk of arterial thrombosis, and that's another use method. Arterial means a clot in a blood vessel that's feeding an organ. So if it's a clot in a blood vessel feeding your brain, it's called a stroke. If it's a clot in a blood vessel feeding your heart, it's a heart attack. So again, we have more euphemisms here to kind of cushion uh, the reality of death here. Okay, included female survivors, which means some didn't survive, right? Age 18 to 50 had a first heart attack stroke between 95 and 98. All right. And so they had the uh, control group and so on. And so women with a heart attack had death rates 3.7 times higher than the controls. And women with ischemic stroke, their mortality rates were 1.8 times higher than controls. So these these ladies, uh, you know, were definitely um, harmed. And so I said, although the risks are, uh, the relative risks are quite substantial, the results need to be put into perspective by considering the absolute risk so in other words, you're saying three times or uh, four times a small number is still small. Still, you need to let these ladies know their chances of dying are increased by taking birth control pills or hormone contraceptive. And so this is, again, a retraction. So uh, birth control pills are not as safe as, say, a glass of water. All right. Here is another one. Now, I'm going to review uh, a prior show I did on doctor burnout. And so the question is, why do doctors burn out? Why do doctors just like, ugh, I can't do this anymore? And they say, well, it's... uh, having so much responsibility, you know, they're making these life and death decisions. And so this article says, uh, nope, that's not the problem. The problem is the standard of care. Hmm. So physician burnout climbs 10% in three years and hits 55%. So 55% of doctors feel uh, burned out. And their satisfaction with their work life balance has worsened dramatically, even though work hours have not increased. Correct. It's what they're being asked to do. I mean, if you were being asked to kill 880,000 people every year collectively, 
you'd probably be burned out too. And so the research study identified a system-based problem that potentially, I guess we're potentially, decreased patient safety for 50% of medical encounters. And, you know, if a research study identified a system-based problem that decreased patient safety for 50% of medical encounters, we would swiftly move to address the problem. So they say, that is precisely the circumstance we are in and we need an appropriate system level response. So what they're saying here is doctor burnout is due to the system that doctors are asked to operate in. And of course, a system this uh, hazardous for the providers, of course, is no safer for the uh, potential victim. All right. So this is a this can be construed, maybe you have a little bit of interpretation here, that the system is the problem. So physician burnout is a system based problem. And this is as close as it gets. Don't get any more any better retractions than that. Not from the standard of care by golly. Okay, so You've all heard about the antibiotic resistant infections and methicillin resistant antibiotic infections, the Clostridium difficile infections, the vancomycin resistant infection, the Klebsiella resistant infection. The thing is, in any given year, if you add up all the deaths from these four and from resistant hospital infection, it comes to a hundred thousand. So. With MRSA, it used to be 49,000, but now they've reclassified them. They're counting them differently. It's 24,000, but the deaths from C. difficile have jumped up to 30,000. And um, the ones from vancomycin resistant intercoccus has jumped to 60,000. So, I mean, 30,000. So, 30, 30, and 20, 3, 6, 88,000. And then you have the Klebsiella infection, another 10 to 12,000. So, the number of infections basically kind of hovers around, not infections, but number of deaths caused by these infections, hovers around 100,000 a year. That's a lot of, a lot of deaths. I mean, we don't have that many AIDS-related deaths. There's not that many gun and violence-related deaths. There's not even that many car accident-related deaths. So this is a pretty big number. It's a big number. So where is the retraction? The retraction would be to say the antibiotics cause these infections, that antibiotics cause these deaths, and that antibiotics are not safe to use. So what do they say? Here's the headline. Preoperative antibiotic exposure and surgical complexity increase the resist the uh the risk of Clostridium difficile infection. So the 30-day postoperative rate of Clostridium difficile infection is increased significantly when the number of antibiotic classes given in the 60 days before surgery and the complexity of surgery is increased. And so uh, the number of antibiotic classes, again, another euphemism, that means uh, types, so post-operative death 
and morbidity. Morbidity is severe, usually permanent damage. It means like a lot of harm. Put that under uh, mutilation. So postoperative morbidity and mortality, that's death, were increased 12-fold, 12-fold, and 5-fold respectively in patients with postoperative clostridium difficile compared with patients who did not develop the infection, the researchers wrote. So, in other words, they had a 12-fold increase in morbidity, that means uh, mutilation and permanent serious damage, and a five-fold increase in death rate. That's awesome. And significant risk factors were the number of antibiotic classes given within 60 days, that's two months before surgery, emergency procedures, and those with intraoperative wounds classified as contaminated or infected, uh, says the biostatistician. Now, what they don't say here is why don't we stop giving preoperative antibiotics routinely? Why don't we find another way of coping with the uh, possibility of infection after surgery. And so all they're going to say is, well, you know, preoperative antibiotic exposure is uh, a marker for five-fold increase in death after surgery. So then, you know, a lot of things could, could happen. For example, if a person has had antibiotics, what you could do is wait three months that's considered uh, the reasonable period of wait, uh, antibiotic washout, wait three months before doing the surgery. There's all kinds of uh, things that you can do. And so uh, they caution that this study may not have captured all cases of post-operative clostridium difficile infection, and some may have been diagnosed outside the VA system, and further, Hospital-acquired infection is usually considered to occur within three months after hospitalization, and the study focused only on 30-day postoperative period. So what they're saying is they know they severely undercounted the number of infections and the negative outcomes from those infections. And so... Uh, and, of course, the final uh, recommendation, none. They add, the results underscore the importance of the development of prophylactic strategies, expeditious recognition of clostridium difficile infection, and adequate supportive care and improved therapies. That's it. That's it. Now, you'd think if your study identified preoperative antibiotic exposure as a risk, then you would have some recommendations to reduce preoperative exposure to antibiotics. Um, no, no, don't, don't think so. So, another retraction. Oh, this one's a doozy. This one is a doozy. Now, a lot of you, uh, you know, if you're diabetic or you know somebody who's diabetic, you probably heard that diabetics have an increased risk of kidney disease and kidney failure. 
Yes, sir. They certainly do. Okay, so aggressive control in patients with diabetes and kidney disease is not associated with improved survival. Got that? So if you have diabetes and any level of kidney disease, aggressive glucose control, leave that to your imagination, that's hemoglobin A1C, 8 or less, does not improve your survival. Does it decrease your survival? And didn't look at that. That study wasn't designed for that. That's what they always told me in medical school. So this is a July 2010 study. Oh, let's put this in the chat room. Be sure that good chatters get a chance to see this. Okay. No, no benefit. Diabetic control. All right. This is a definite contradiction of the posture of controlling diabetes. Now, what are they calling aggressive control? According to the researchers, data supporting universal targets for glycemic control with end-stage renal disease are lacking. Okay? What does that mean? In English? There is no data supporting a particular number of hemoglobin A1C to be achieved in patients with end-stage renal disease. Now, even though there's no such data, the Kidney Disease Outcomes Quality Initiative Committee, whoever they are, last updated in 2007, God bless your soul, states that target hemoglobin A1C levels for people with diabetes should be lower than 7, regardless of the presence or absence of chronic kidney disease. So this is, of course, shocking that people are still following this in the face of more recent uh, studies or revelations in 2015 indicating a 30% increase in death from all causes when the hemoglobin A1C is 8 or less. So, and what did they say? Of the patients, extremes of glycemia, that means very low or very high, were associated with decreased survival. So patients with type 2 diabetes in the lowest hemoglobin A1C category had decreased survival. This is hemoglobin A1C in their study less than 5. And they say a 20% increased risk of death. And their P is less than 0.001. So less than 0.05 is considered uh, valid. But this is less than 0.001, which is an even smaller number and very uh, valid. And a hemoglobin A1C level higher than 11% was also associated with a 20% increased risk for death. And so somewhere uh, the truth lies. So the ideal hemoglobin A1C is somewhere between 5 and 11. Very consistent with the recent study in 2015 indicating that the optimal hemoglobin A1C is somewhere over 8 if you're receiving medication. And patient type with type 1 diabetes, it was even... Uh, even worse. So what they're saying then 
individualized hemoglobin A1C targets are necessary and and must take into account the ability of patients and their caregivers to respond to hypoglycemic glycemic events might be more appropriate than a one-size-fits-all target from studies in the general population. So what they're saying then here is even though we know a lower hemoglobin A1C target is associated with increased death, it's okay to do that if the patient and their caregivers are trained and equipped to handle the disasters and emergencies created by having that target. So there is your retraction. And it's really uh, endless. All right, so we have one more retraction, and then we'll take questions. This is my favorite. So this is the ultimate retraction. And this is written um, by the Journal of the American Medical Association, published in 2015. And it is a retraction of an article published in 2013. And it says, this is what we would hope, notice of retraction. Such and such authors on walking times and quality of life among patients with peripheral artery disease, that means uh, bad circulation to their legs, and intermittent claudication, that means pain in the legs with walking, and a randomized controlled uh, trial, the ultimate gold standard of research. Um, so references, we wish, to the editor, we wish to retract the article, effects of this drug on walking times and quality of life among patients with peripheral artery disease and intermittent claudication. In the February 6, 2013 issue of the Journal of the American Medical Association, a recent internal sub-analysis of these data revealed anomalies, in other words, inconsistencies, which triggered the investigation and the admission of fabricated results by so-and-so, who is both the first and corresponding author and was responsible for data collection and integrity for the article. No other co-authors were involved in this misrepresentation. In particular, the data collected at a certain site remains valid. Given the current indications for this drug, we do not believe that patients have been adversely affected. In other words, we lied, we apologize, so what? All authors recognize the seriousness of this issue and apologize unreservedly to the editor, reviews, and readers of the Journal of the American Medical Association. And so they go on to talk about the uh, good clinical practice was in place. However, clinical governance and audit procedures will be reviewed. But again, procedures are nothing when you have the integrity of the individuals as the problem. Okay, so he says, we sincerely regret this study has been compromised. We feel deeply disappointed and let down by this situation and are committed to rapidly correcting the public record and implementing practices to prevent recurrence. Hey guys, 
this is as good as it gets. We lied. It didn't matter anyway. Nobody was harmed. We won't do it again. We are improving. So what you got to understand is this drug is a blood pressure drug, and the side effects of this drug are dizziness, tired feeling, spinning sensation. It's easy to see this drug is going to impair anyone's ability to walk, right? And so just reading the package insert written by the drug company making this drug, you read this package insert and you say, well, this drug can't possibly help anybody walk better because it's going to make you dizzy and tired and make you feel like you're spinning, not conducive to improving your walking. So you have to wonder how many people were prescribed this drug and suffered the financial ruin of acquiring this drug. How many people purchased unnecessary drug prescription plans to make it easier to pay for this drug when they didn't need it at all? So this is what retractions look like. This is what retractions look like. And so what the retractions look like is, well, things aren't quite what we thought they were, but no need to make any changes now or don't rush into anything. And this is why what's being taught in medical school now, 2015, is really not a whole lot different from what was being taught back in 1983 when I graduated. We still use water pills for hypertension. We still use beta blockers. We still use calcium channel blockers and ACE inhibitors. Uh, arthritis is still incurable. I mean, so many things are just uh, you know, pretty much the same. And so what we have is an admission by the industry that every year 50% of what's being taught is false. And 50% of what's being taught is false at the time it's being taught. And so if you go out then to the, so said the four-year period, 25% is true. The eight-year period, 12% is true. The 12-year period, 6% is true. The 16-year period, 3% is true. The 20-year period, 1.5% is true. Let's just stop counting right there. So that would mean then that 98% at least of what doctors are now being taught is simply not true. So these are the retractions. Don't uh, don't wait for it. Don't count on it. And the standard of care, don't expect it to be altered by these retractions. And so let's take questions. If you get one in your phone, if you want questions, if you have a question, also we're going to go check out the chat room, which has been hopping with comments. Okay. These sound like pseudo-retractions. You could say that, but they are retractions. In other words, what they're saying is, oh, birth control pills, not as safe as we thought. I guess women are going to have heart attacks on these pills, and when they do have heart attacks, we need to make sure we turn them into lifetime patients. And so each, oops, we made a mistake, gets turned into another economic 
opportunity. Okay. Dr. Daniels, what happens when it's discovered that a drug is not useful for a particular purpose? Okay. Usually what happens, a couple of things happen. One, they get repurposed. So they pick a frequent side effect and repurpose it for that side effect. Um, and this is what happened with Viagra. Viagra was initially a cardiac drug. It was totally ineffective. They noticed that guys got erections, and so they repurposed it as uh, a drug for erectile dysfunction. So they repurposed them. And a lot of times what they do is they get a ruling from the FDA that says, hey, you can keep using that drug until three, four years, which basically amounts to using up present stock. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so does this have anything to do with the flu vaccine? I think so. It's my understanding that the same flu vaccine is often used year after year, which is, uh, doesn't make sense when they say that each year it's a different strain and they redo the vaccine for that strain. Yeah. And Dr. Daniels, do you think that this is a conspiracy theory? Um, no, I don't think it's a conspiracy exactly. I think that what's going on here is everyone has financial incentives that don't comport with the best interest of the patient. And so what you have then is you have each person responding independently to their incentives. And this is what makes it so bad. I mean, you could take a doctor and say, this is a conspiracy. Who did you plan and plot with? And he'll say, no one, no one, which is true. Um, but he's simply subjected to circumstances, pressures, and rules that he doesn't spend any time uh, reflecting about or thinking about. So the purpose of this show is for you to realize the kind of uh, information your doctor is getting and that he really isn't getting a clear message that something he learned in medical school is no longer true. He needs to update it. Uh, he may get some information that... It needs to be updated, but how does it need to be updated? Because he's got to stick to the standard of care, right? So if he doesn't stick to the standard of care, then he's got a problem. You know, he could lose his license. So he's looking for more precise instruction and uh, direction. Okay. Are dangerous drugs just sent overseas? No. Uh, you would wish that they were sent overseas. Um, dangerous drugs are simply uh, repurposed. Like when uh, speed became illegal as a street drug, they said, okay, we still got the drug companies that made the speed, so we've got to sell this stuff. We can't just, you know, not sell it. And so they repurposed it as uh, ADHD medication. So basically, when you put your kid on these medications, it's uh, you're basically putting them on speed, which is uh, shocking. Okay. Nobody knows. 
Okay. Okay, religious people are often confused when it comes to health and what is good for the body. I saw a church spraying Roundup on preschool kids' playground, which was made entirely of brown gravel to get rid of anything green growing in the yard. Yep, that is often uh, the issue. Unfortunately, uh, the only cure for that is education, because I'm sure they're not trying to damage the children. (sighs) Okay, let's see. Not only that... Oh, yeah, this is unfortunate. Okay. I'm really amazed that everyone doesn't know about diet soda. I'm told they're using a different sweetener than aspartame these days. Can we expect that it would be safe? Answer is no. Um, I think it's safe to simply decide that any artificial form of anything is simply unsafe. Why? Because it's synthetic. Your body recognizes it not as nutrition, but as indigestible waste, it gets stored, and that gives you um, a weaker, sluggish liver. It gives you age spots. It gives you mold, and it's going to slow down your system. So um, I would recommend to anyone who decides that they want to drink soda pop to drink the stuff that actually has sugar in it and do things like cut it with water equal amounts or drink less of it um, that kind of thing. So you absolutely need to just cross off all artificial sweeteners just like, okay, forget it. I got it. I got it. It's just not going to be safe. And it's just that your body isn't programmed to uh, handle that. Okay. How does the stomach know when to pass on the food to the next stage? Um, It's not a matter of the stomach knowing when to pass food on to the next stage. Um, The stomach is basically a bowl of acid, and it, and it, it churns and it contracts and it mixes things. And you have an outlet to the stomach. And things go through that outlet when they achieve basically a certain size. And so... Um, the stomach just churns and churns and churns for a certain length of time and pushes stuff further on the line. And so people who have strong digestion, the stomach will, as it churns and churns and churns, things will get smaller and will get better digested. And so if you have less acid in your stomach, then as it churns and churns, there's less digestion, and what moves on to the next stage is actually not really ready to be absorbed. Food gets smaller to exit through the wall. So food does not exit the stomach through the wall. It exits through the uh, pyloric valve into the small intestine. So food actually exits through the wall of the small intestine, and that's where it gets absorbed. 
okay. So it's kind of difficult to be secure in radical views, I guess views different from the mainstream, and disbelieving the lies when your employment or livelihood is dependent on these lies and your ability to get out of this is dependent on never focusing or engaging such views publicly. Okay, so if you find or when you find that your present station in life, such as it is, is dependent upon these lies, you just need to, I think, reposition yourself. Because if you don't, then um, you develop this burnout, which is what these 55% of doctors are subject to. If they see they're harming people, they're being told that they are not harming people, they're being paid um, you know, to commit this uh, terrible harm. And so this is, this is like cognitive dissonance. So this, is, this is like a serious, stressful situation. So I'd recommend to anyone that they um, remove themselves from that pressure. So either uh, retrain or you know, find some other way of handling it. Um, what some people do is they just decide, you know what, this is what I do for a living and this is what I do for my private life. And they draw that line there. Um, for some people that works. Excuse me, for most people it doesn't. And um, being secure in radical views. Again, you don't need to be secure in radical views. Just go read the medical literature itself. It's stunning. It's shocking. And that's what turned me around. I would see a patient in the office, like, okay, how come this patient's not getting better? All right, like, write down their name and what your problem was. And then I would go to the medical library. I would look it up. Sure enough, the medical library itself, the data in the medical library, contradicted the standard of care at every single time without exception. And that's what got me on the trail of realizing, wait a minute, something's not right. So um, that's what, what did it, the medical school library. Well, we're coming up on the end of the show. And let's see. Okay. Are there any significant number of doctors getting tired of being lied to by these gangsters? I would say yes, and I think that's what the 55% burnout rate is. The doctors are not only tired of being lied to by the gangsters, but they're tired of having to lie to themselves. So it's very, very stressful. Okay, so we are at the end of the show, and as always, think happens. We'll see you on Sunday, same topic, retractions, and then next Tuesday, new topic. So... Thank you very much, and we'll see you next time.